Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about monogamy, or something I like to call, you are what you eat. Since I intend to release this sometime around Valentine's Day, it seemed like an appropriate moment to talk dirty to you for a little bit. There's a couple of things I want to accomplish. First, I want to do just a little bit more to bring the sex piece of the mission statement for this show into play. And second, I want to pick up a little bit from where I've left off the last couple of weeks, talking about some of the, you know, the issues that we have with masculinity gone wrong, some of the things that we misunderstand about male-female relationships. And in the course of doing that, I want to hit on the topic of monogamy just a little bit and kind of blow up the myth, in my opinion, it's a myth, that the only way to be sexually satisfied is to do so with as many random partners as possible. But first, let me share with you an, a naughty essay that I wrote at least a decade or so after high school, probably more like 15 or 16 years. It goes like this. I called it petting. I have tasted the sweetly heavy kiss from only one pair of lips. This, although I am more than a million years old. Yet I had been and have been and shall have been contemplating that very kiss for more than 16 years now. That is, after all, what we wanted to know. We didn't care how Tim got past the security gate. Why do people name their dogs? I mean, a pet, I imagine, would be just as lovable named or nameless. But to name a guard dog? Well, why not just call them one or two or three? More to the point, Tim did not need to explain to us what L had done to keep the one and two and three dogs collectively quiet. And he certainly did not need to identify them by name. This detail was not essential to our disbelief, nor was the elaborate description of her large outdoor swimming pool, and its all-too-verifiable anecdote about why the pool was still full of water in late November. Of course, guiding us past the pool did enable Tim to reach the ladder. Fair enough, because up the ladder is where we wanted to go. Tim placed the ladder quietly and securely against her bedroom window. Then he reached one hand on top of the other, slowly and surreptitiously, gently grasping each higher rung until finally, finally, he touched the only slightly damp exterior of her cotton bikini panties. Balancing himself precariously at the ledge of this window, he slipped himself inside, forever closing the pane from behind. While Tim talked melodramatically about crossing his plate-glass threshold, I couldn't help but wonder what was in it for L. She was the North Pole, impatiently awaiting her admiral. She was the bottomless pit, forever to echo the screams of fallen innocence, but never the thud of unforgiving maturity. She was a map, a region drawn in detail by a would-be explorer who never visited the land bearing his name. Did El's untamed natives practice rituals familiar to the audience at Tim's old world storytelling? Although I will never know, I long ago stopped speculating. It is enough to note that Tim's actions, however well-intended, did not beget a result befitting a yarn from Elle's knitting club. Elle sought excitement from the danger, not the embrace. She centered her life solely around tension, 
not release. I'm guessing this was a sexual fact as well. Elle was small, but not petite. Her body reminded me of Carol's, only smaller high and larger low. Carol was a brunette, and Elle was one of those non-blondes. Her hair, if the color really reflected her actual hair, was brown. And since we don't have a word like brown head, a great many people refer to light brown hair as part of the realm of blondness. That said, Elle was not a blonde. I once took an occasion to wonder whether Elle would have been sexually attractive if her family wasn't rich. Although women suffer the reputation of being sexually attracted to charge cards and greenbacks, I have seen many a libidinous male respond to the same stimuli. Elle aroused many in this manner. Despite this evidence, I rejected the theory for one compelling reason. I didn't care about money, and I found Elle sexually attractive. She was not as physically gifted as other girls I knew, Carol, for example, but she was sexually enticing. Well, there is something undeniably enticing about a doctor's daughter who disables her home security system and tranquilizes her father's guard dogs so she can welcome a boy she is not dating into her bedroom after midnight. Regardless of the location, there is a sense of mystery and wonder about a girl who would pucker her panty-free lips in pursuit of accomplishment rather than satisfaction. Although befuddling, Elle had enough charm and her powerful personality that her emotional contradictions seemed to lengthen her legs and round out her breasts. I'm using an unfair analogy, though. Thanks to Tim, Elle's iconoclasty had nothing to do with legs or breasts. No, Elle was lurking just beneath the short of short-enough cheerleader skirts. Elle was the dark and shadowy blue where the inseams of denim jeans meet. That said, she did not give Tim her orgasm. But she gave him something that he added to our collective unconsciousness. She gave him a story. Even if Tim's story was false, Elle was not harmed by the telling. She was fully compensated by the justifiable outrage that he would kiss and tell. By the unconvincing plea that she had been slandered and sullied. And by the egotistical delight at being able to detect the prurient glimmer in the eyes of Tim's friends. That glimmer told Elle that she could measure her worth in rumor. Tim's lie flattered Elle with what he wanted from her. The conspiratorial silence and guiltily exchanged glances among Tim's friends transformed her into a symbol of herself for us all. Elle was our collective ladder, propped against a warm, dark, and mysterious cotton-clad window. We all cheated the alarm and braved the dogs to climb that window. We stared intently at our hallucination of her. We all desperately wanted to kiss her, even if such a kiss didn't make her moan in response, and even if she didn't kiss back. I think Elle liked that. She liked wanting to be kissed better than the kiss itself. Masters of None. Hey, it's Jay from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. As you might suspect, I've changed some of the names to protect the innocent there. I won't tell you which names. It's really unimportant. But, you know, the story, if nothing else, gives you a sense that, you know, I, I, a lot of times we'll speak to moral issues, and I'm about to do so here in the balance of the show. But it doesn't mean that there's not something important there, that sexuality needs to be dangerous. It needs to be real. It needs to be something that occupies thoughts, especially when you're 
at the right age and lacking practical experience. And at that point in time, uh, we completely disrupted the high school class that we shared together. There were probably several days, if not maybe even more than a week, where the only thing that any of my friends learned in that classroom were some of the fundamentals of the story that Tim told and whether or not it might be true. What I really wanted to do, though, was talk about monogamy and to talk about it in a positive way, because a lot of times the church gets this reputation as being against, that we measure a lot of religious belief, not just Christian religious beliefs, but pretty much all religious teaching, as teaching something against or, or what you're not supposed to do. And people have this perception of a big list of rules. And, you know, a lot of Christian scholars will tell you that a lot of the sexual ethics that you'll find in Christianity are not necessarily designed to be a big list of do's and don'ts, that there shouldn't be a nun with a ruler on the other side of that ready to smack you on the wrist if you do something wrong. Instead, what they represent is a guideline for genuine happiness. And it is in that spirit that, particularly on this Valentine's Day type show, uh, perhaps completely inappropriate for Valentine's Day, which would be fitting, I want to share another essay that I wrote near the same time called You Are What You Eat. Particularly for men, the sexual revolutionary slogan in favor of multiple sex partners goes something like this. How could you possibly eat the same home-cooked meal every night for the rest of your life? How could you possibly eat the same home-cooked meal every night for the rest of your life? What does this question mean? Essentially, the flaw here is the assumption that good cooking comes in small doses from a variety of kitchens. On the contrary, truly fulfilling sexual experience develops through the course of an ever-developing sexual relationship. To put it another way, what if you loved food? What if you only got deep personal gratification while eating a wonderful meal? Would you rather marry a grocer or a chef? Those who argue in favor of multiple partners would have to choose the grocer. That's the only way to sample the largest variety of the world's meats. She can bring you beef, chicken, fish, other seafood, pork, escargot, quail, other fowl, literally a smorgasbord of completely different entrees. The chef, on the other hand, would seem limited if she really only worked by avocation with chicken or recipes for chicken. The advantage the chef has, though, is that this gratification comes from the preparation rather than the ingredients. She can cook chicken in a greater variety of salivatory ways than the grocer can provide varieties of edible meat. Most men learn, and some learn the hard way, that broiled fish, broiled beef, broiled chicken, etc., 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 is a quick ticket to boredom. Compare it, for example, to chicken Kiev, chicken Parmigiana, chicken Tetrazzini, chicken in a lobster tail butter sauce, chicken fried American style, etc., etc. The man sampling multiple meats rarely gets sumptuous cooking. That requires a relationship. Instead, he is always sampling the basic we've just met meal. He may as well fix himself a TV dinner in some cases. That's because the only difference in gratifying himself alone and gratifying himself with this grocer is that someone else is defrosting the meat. No one is cooking a gourmet meal. The kitchen metaphor isn't adequately confrontational. A sexual partner who avoids lasting interpersonal relationships is running from himself. If a sexual relationship cannot be satisfying as it develops over decades, then it's a clear indication that one of the partners is a lousy lover. 
Some of these potentially lousy lovers delude themselves into believing that they are seeking the perfect dish. Again, the perfect dish is not something you find on the road and bring home to broil. The man who marries a chef to achieve blissful culinary gratification isn't seeking one perfect meal. Rather, he is content to dine on good food regularly, knowing that his taste buds will be stunned by an unbelievable dining delight often enough. What happens if the chef serves her husband a recipe he doesn't quite like? For a couple with a strong, healthy relationship, it may be a simple matter for him to politely explain. Surely he could help her turn an unsatisfying chicken pot pie into a quality chicken noodle soup. Both will have some expertise on making the most of chicken. What happens if this grocer's husband realizes that he shouldn't have asked his wife to bring home swordfish? Well, he will be hungry that night because you cannot turn broiled swordfish into broiled beef. That may not be his worst fate, though. If both men seek variety for variety's sake, the chef's husband could live a lifetime without tasting the exact same recipe twice. Eventually, though, the man in search of new meat will have to resort to eating dog, rat, or even dung beetles. That's because most of the meat prepared in the kitchens in our society are made of beef, chicken, fish, or pork. Are there differences among our four primary meat choices? Certainly. Some people may confuse chicken and pork from time to time, but the differences between beef and fish are unmistakable. On the other hand, the primary meats that either the grocer or chef are likely to serve differ in stronger ways from dung beetles, for example. The kitchen metaphor leaves open a justification for a man trying to sample a variety of meats at a certain age, although the sampler in this case could be you know, something like a half dozen. Taste testing is not the error of a person who couldn't possibly eat the same home cooking for the rest of my life. The problem is the foolish notion that gourmet is judged by ingredients rather than the chef. My advice, determine what meats you like and dislike. Frequent those stores and restaurants that cater to your tastes. And avoid the a la carte window. True culinary happiness will come only if you get to know the chef. Prepare her to cook for you and you only. Then you will be blessed with the same delightfully enticing home-cooked gourmet menu of ever-changing possibilities for as long as your tongue can taste, and possibly even longer. Hey, this is Harrison Ford. When I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sint... Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought she'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. Perhaps I've overstated things the last week or two, but I had a sense maybe last week that I didn't speak forcefully enough. That there is something about the idea that a young man, whether trying to prove himself to be quote-unquote macho enough for his future uh, fraternity mates, or just trying to prove himself as being a ladies' man in every sense of the word, there is something in that moment where this individual decided that he was going to have sexual relations with a woman who was unconscious completely missed the point. It was an absolute, unmitigated act of self-gratification, and he might as well have been alone hours later in his bedroom with his memory of her, that there was no need for him to sexually assault her, there was no need for her to be there at all. Because true sex, sex in the greatest sense of the word, is really two people 
bringing their bodies and their creative energy and their um, physical connection and emotional connection with each other together in something where I don't even like the concept of making a distinction between foreplay and anything that might come after foreplay. To me, it needs to be one continuous, potentially even symphonic event. From time to time, there really does need to be a different drummer that has absolutely no direct connection with the topic. I could try to make some weak argument that a jazz musician, the style of Don Ellis, uh, brings in all that unpredictability and that vitality and the the life and the give and take of a, a, and all that and that represents kind of the sort of sexual relationship. I won't go there. <laughs> Don't worry. I won't go there. I'm going to read something uh, quickly biographically from Don Ellis Music. Dot com. This is a website that I only recently found. I've been a fan of Don Ellis's music probably since around the time that I met Elle, if that is her real name. Before his untimely death in 1978, at the young age of 44, Don Ellis was one of the most creative and innovative jazz musicians of all time. This is a statement that I absolutely agree with. It sounds crazy to say that someone was only making music for 25 years or less, and who died at the age of 44, could have in that short period of time established himself as one of the all-time greats, but I believe it's true. Don Ellis distinguished himself as a trumpeter, drummer, composer, arranger, recording artist, author, music critic, and educator. He's probably best remembered for his work as a big band leader, and that's why I'm citing him as a different drummer. His orchestra was active from 1966 to 1978, and the Don Ellis Jazz Orchestra did several things. First, it brought the concept of large ensembles back into the forefront of imagination after essentially having lied dormant since you know, the bebop era. But the other thing that he did was bring in groundbreaking musical techniques and devices and bringing in not just an entire world of music, literally tapping into world music, bringing in other influences from rock and from uh, African music and music of the Indian subcontinent. But he also did so with other instruments that you really didn't hear used in jazz that often. Electric guitar, for one, but also electronic sound altering devices. Um, he used experiments with quarter tones, the infusion of 20th century classical music, and drum. The rhythmic devices ultimately became his trademark. His compositions frequently displayed time signatures with numerators of 5, 7, 9, 11, 19, 25, 33, and stranger still. I once heard a, a quote that was meant as an homage to Don Ellis, saying that Don Ellis was the only composer and arranger in the world who would play Brubeck's Take 5 in 4-4. Four, four. He was, in some ways, just that weird. When I'm looking for something musically that I think is going to stimulate my mind and strike me as something that I can't just rest into, that even after multiple listens doesn't quite sound familiar, I look to Don Ellis. His rhythmic innovations, despite often being criticized as a gimmick, were not gimmicks at all. They were a direct result of his studies in non-Western musical cultures, which included graduate work at UCLA's Department of Ethnomusicology. If I talked about Don Ellis from the perspective of his jazz orchestra, I'm going to cite two works in particular that I think were just crucial moments for me and the ones that I remember the most fondly. I've been asked from time to time why I still have albums, because I still have 12-inch vinyl LPs. 
And at the time, I said, you know what? When the CD first came out, I know a lot of people who ditched their album collection and their turntable and turned to compact disc technology long before the CD had earned that right. That I not only wanted um, compact discs to give me the newest releases from artists, but I also had a certain piece of my catalog that I wasn't going to walk away from if it wasn't represented by the new technology. I sat down and I made a list of 25 25 recordings that I absolutely had to have on CD before I would buy a player. Now, obviously, I didn't hold out for that because there's still recordings on that list that have not been released. A sort of Roland Barthes spinoff joke band from Yale University in the late 70s called um, SZ released an album called Just Texting, all of which referring to, you know, Roland Barthes and his theories of semiology. I, you know, I put that on the list just to mess with people. Of course, you're not going to see that kind of a niche recording um, that did come out on vinyl LP. You're not going to see that on CD. But I did wait until there was a good dozen of my list of 25 that ultimately got released on compact disc. And I, I wish I had the list today. It'd be really fun to look back on it. And you know, some of the things I put on the list I knew were imminently going to be available. Uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall was on there, The Beatles, Abbey Road, stuff like that. But among the more obscure recordings was Don Ellis. We've since seen CD releases, in fact, multiple CD releases for Brian Eno's Music for Airports and for Deaf School. Uh, their entire output is now available on CD. But the Don Ellis Jazz Orchestra live at Fillmore was on that list of mine. And I kept my albums from Sony because Sony did not release the music on CD. And to be honest with you, I suspect that if they had, it might have been truncated. It wouldn't have been the two CD set that you'd have to do to properly represent that recording. So I'm very grateful to Wounded Bird Records, who only very recently began reissuing some of these Don Ellis recordings, including the back-to-back double-disc releases of Don Ellis at Fillmore and also Tears of Joy. To start with Tears of Joy, one of the things that made this album special for me was a Bulgarian jazz pianist, and I'm going to butcher his name, but I'll try it, uh, Milcho Levyev. He contributed not only uh, his music on various keyboards, but also his contribution to the arrangements, took things and bent them in an ancient style and also an Eastern European style. And in honor of him, one of the recordings on Tears of Joy was a track called Bulgarian Bulge. Now, this is the kind of humor that you're going to get from Don Ellis. His own works have titles like uh, Quiet Longing and How's This for Openers, um, Strawberry Soup, and um, the members of his band who also contributed their charts and compositions, including tracks like Euphoric Acid, which is one of my favorite. Uh, from Tears of Joy, along with Bulgarian Bulge. But truthfully, the Don Ellis recording that I listen to more than any other is live at Fillmore. And one of the reasons that I admire this recording so much is not only does he have the entire big band, and are they playing live you know, in San Francisco, being recorded as they are, it's a warts and all kind of a release. They're not cleaning up a lot here. If somebody hits an off note, it's on the CD. And that's a good thing. In this era of auto-tune, and other techniques where you're not even 100% sure that the singers you hear doing pop songs on the radio are actually capable of singing. The Don Ellis Orchestra is simultaneously demonstrating that they are capable of playing these incredibly complex rhythms um, with incredibly impressive solos live, but they're also capable of getting it a bit wrong. My all-time favorite, Don Ellis Track, uh, originally released on the album Autumn, but I think perhaps performed much better here, or at least much more to my liking here on At Fillmore, is Pussy Wiggle Stomp. 
on a recording that includes other tracks like The Magic Bus Ate My Donut and Old Man's Tear and a very bizarre version of Hey Jude. Pussy Wiggle Stomp, clocking in at 12 minutes long, is the encore to the show. And it includes the band coming back out on stage and asking the audience if they really want one more. And the audience screaming no and then playing on anyway. And it's also an excellent example of one point in time where Don Ellis himself messes up a solo midway through. And you can actually hear somebody else from the band yelling at him as he pauses and telling him to start again. This is live jazz in the fullest sense of the word and recorded pretty much with everything hanging out and released. Now, if you don't like jazz music, then this is probably not the recording for you. As the biography that I read from the Don Ellis Music website probably gives you a pretty good sense, this is graduate studies jazz. This is not entry-level material. But if you've got enough of an understanding and perhaps a respect, if not admiration, for the original big band era uh, with you know band leaders like you know Artie Shaw and Tommy Dorsey and uh, Glenn Miller, then I think that there's a lot of rewards to be heard here in this 1960s experimental phase, where in some ways Don Ellis ref- represents the equivalent of, of a white album or um, maybe even the zombies in terms of the time, the type of psychedelic experiments that were going on, except doing it inside the jazz idiom. Don Ellis would die about eight years after the release of this album, succumbing to a long battle with cancer. He'd have a couple of other live albums along the way. And again, as I mentioned, this is the kind of music that I turn to when I'm looking for jazz that isn't afraid to be a little bit naughty. Now, you know, Pussy Wiggle Stomp doesn't have any lyrics, so there's no explicit language tag being merited here. Although I am reminded of the comedy of the Parents Music Resource Center in the mid-1980s, putting an explicit tag on the Frank Zappa album Jazz from Hell even though you'd have to describe the album as instrumental, because Frank Zappa had written a composition called G-Spot Tornado. So you never know. Uh, at certain points in American history, um, albums like Autumn by Don Ellis and the Live at Fillmore by Don Ellis Jazz Orchestra could have been branded with a parental warning label, because even though Pussy Wiggle Stomp can be read in lots of ways, it can be read in a nice way. It also can be read in a naughty way. And the fact of the matter is, you don't have to decide. You can listen to Don Ellis's music at any speed you want, at any tempo or meter you want, and you're not going to get to the end of it from one listening. I personally haven't gotten to the end of it after decades of listening. And that makes Don Ellis an excellent, different drummer. I'm asking myself now as I look back whether Don Ellis is actually the first drummer among these different drummers, and I think the answer is probably yes. I don't think I noticed it before because in my mind, Don Ellis is first and foremost a trumpet player. That's actually the the instrument where I think he shines as a soloist, and although he's unmistakably talented from a rhythmic perspective, he almost always toured with another drummer, and I'm tempted to say with a real drummer, and that's probably not fair, but I don't think of him first and foremost as being a drummer. I'm going to keep this episode short. Uh, there's been a lot that have been quite long, and there's plenty that I've talked about here that you know, might have caused people to hit the stop button at any point along the way. So why make those folks feel like they've missed a lot? If you'd like to put some dialogue into this ongoing inappropriate conversation, comments are enabled at the website at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. That's a Podbean site with no leading W's. I also can be reached by email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.